also. So this morning, let's start braiding together, weaving together the strands of our practice so far that can look like they're just kind of parallel or just kind of slapped together, whereas in fact they are profoundly interrelated. And so we have on the one hand this practice we've been moving through, and that is settling the mind in this natural state where, in which, as you know, we're doing the best of our approximation, the best approximation of viewing whatever is coming up in the space of the mind, as well as the space of the mind itself, our best approximation of viewing that from the perspective of substrate consciousness as a shamatha practice, right? Because that's where we want to dissolve, dissolve the entire subjective mind into the substrate consciousness. So we, that's quite clear, yeah. So, as usual, we're going in the shallow end of the pool. We start with that which is easier, we move to that which is more challenging. What is easier is to mentally recite, Om Mani Padme Hum. Well, I could do that. That was easy. You know, just an appearance to the mind. We attend to it, no problem. Got it, right? Hmm. And then, after, after that little crystallization of something, this formation like, a, like fireworks appearing in the sky, when it fades out, then we remain right there, attending to the same sky, the same space, then we may very well see another thought or another image coming up. Not too hard. Not too hard. So that's good. And we are observing those in real time insofar as we're not identifying with them. So just... You're just sitting there quietly and an image comes up. Well, as soon as that image comes up, you can be right there, right? And likewise, just a thought comes up. Not a thought that you thought, a thought that just happened. It comes up, you see it right then, right? Okay, that's easy. Get, get the hang of that. This is really useful. So that we're not simply abducted by all these strange flying objects that appear in the space of the mind, but actually observe them and then they don't abduct us and take them off to their home planets. But on the basis of that, then we take on the more subtle challenge. And that is something wherein we are able to observe these subjective impulses arising in the mind, and we get them, by and large, we get them retrospectively. That is, the desires, the hopes, the fears, and so forth. Uh, but now let's go right to the, ch- cut right to the main point. Mental afflictions. Let's just focus just on the three, the three basic toxins. Craving, attachment know about that. Hostility or anger, hatred, there's a second one. And then let's just call it stupidity. You know? <laughs> let's just use an ordinary term for just stupidity. Ignorance, delusion is the more technical. Madik badang or dibu. So here's a really interesting point. And see whether it's true or not. I mean, this is really inviting you to check for yourself. And that is, we all know what it's like to be caught up and snared by the mental afflictions. We know they afflict the mind. They throw us out of balance. We all know that, right? But now, but that's when we're viewing them from within, from within the context of cognitive fusion. That is, I'm focusing on that, and I'm, I, I really want that, so I'm fused with the attachment. I'm fused with the hostility. I'm fused with a kind of a stupid, delusional way of attending to reality. And then they're called mental afflictions. They're toxic. They give rise to unwholesome behavior, and all the misery of the world flows out from that. But insofar as we can observe them from this best approximation of the substrate consciousness, what do the mental afflictions look like from the substrate consciousness? When you're not attending to the referent, of the mental affliction, you're attending to the mental affliction itself, that subjective impulse of viewing with 
craving, with hostility, with delusion? What do they look like when you're observing the subjective impulse and not getting snared or entrapped by the object of the mental affliction? That's very cool. This is from the Dzogchen tradition. And that is when you observe then the impulse of anger, hatred, and you're observing it from that perspective, what you see there is not a toxin, because it's not toxifying you, it's not afflicting you, it's not poisoning you, not from that level. You're seeing it more like just an event taking place, and you see it as an expression of the sheer luminosity of the substrate consciousness. Right, look right into the anger. I remember Gyatso Rinpoche telling me really clearly years ago, Alan, you know, when anger comes up, he knows and that's my mental affliction, more than craving or delusion, more like, like that. So it, yeah, it's kind of obvious. And so he said, when that comes up, don't just beat yourself. Don't just get frustrated. Don't just be unhappy. Observe it. You know? Don't even apply an antidote. Just view it. Now, optimally, of course, you view it from the perspective of Rikpa, but that if that's not quite accessible right now, well, at least your best approximation of that. Rest in the stillness of your awareness. Observe the movements of anger, hatred, and then look right into it, and if, see if it's not true, that that's just a sheer manifestation of the luminosity, the sharpness, the sharpness, the luminosity, the intensity of your own substrate consciousness. And that sharpness, that luminosity, that intensity is not a mental affliction. There's nothing wrong with being intense. Nothing wrong with being sharp, nothing wrong with being brilliant, luminous, having a razor edge, nothing wrong with that at all. That's called the sword of Manjushri. View it there, then it's not toxic. And then when you see, not just desire, but you see the mental affliction of craving attachment coming up, Craving, bear in mind which, when I'm craving, is going to kind of say, I think I'm going to get it, I may get it, I hope I get it, oh, I think I'm going to get it, maybe, I hope so. Ah, so there's some happiness there. And in anticipation, I'll get it. And if I've got it, oh, I've got it, I'm going to keep it, I'm going to keep it forever. <laughs> ah. And so either way, it's got that bliss in it. Look into the very nature of the craving and attachment and you can find bliss, second quality. It's an effulgence, a display of the bliss of your own substrate consciousness. And then when you just observe your mind in this I-it relationship, and your conclusion is, what a dope. (laughs) You're so bloody stupid, I can hardly bear to be in the same room with you, you idiot, delusional twerp. So blöd, to be so blöd. (laughs) I love it in German. Germans have some real words in blöd. Is stupid. Well, view that from the sub, and you just see it as sheer non-conceptuality. When we say, "Oh, you're so thoughtless," what are you stupid? You're just being. You're so thoughtless. You're just stupid. You're so thought. Yeah, yeah, thought- thoughtless. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> non-conceptuality. That's an expression of non-conceptuality without the clear cognizance. So, what we're trying to do here is rest in non-conceptuality that is brilliant with cognizance. Otherwise, we're just cultivating stupor. So that's kind of cool. That's what this is about. But then, that was just a little commentary on the suddenly minus natural state. But of course, we're couching this in the Guru Yoga, 
the four empowerments, seven-line prayer, Padmasambhava, pure vision. So we're imagining that, and we're doing our best to approximate not just substrate consciousness, but to dissolve even that, to cut through even that, and a view, of course, from the perspective of pristine awareness. That's where we're going, right? But in the meantime, but we see this on the same trajectory. It's not another practice. It's the same trajectory exactly. And the Guru Yoga is just kind of receiving a blessing that we keep on moving, not get stuck, not become complacent with just resting in the substrate consciousness. Right? But now, let's tie this all together. Yesterday, the sadhana, the stage of generation sadhana of Avalokiteshvara, based upon some understanding of emptiness and intuitive affirmation or faith in Buddha nature, Dharmakaya. Then by the power of imagination, we're seeking to, to view everything that comes to mind, everything that comes to mind, as being displays of Dharmakaya. Well, that's good. I mean, that's, that, that's what we're seeking to do, right? And so well, this is a big step in that direction, and that is when anger, craving, delusion come up. We're not just getting angry, attached and stupid, but we're seeing it, seeing them as displays of luminosity, bliss and non-conceptuality. Those are all qualities of Dharmakaya. Right? They're all qualities of Dharmakaya. They're not just qualities of substrate consciousness. On a much deeper level, of course, the Dharmakaya transcends all conceptual elaboration. And of course it has bliss and of course it's clear like mind. What's more, what's more brilliant than that? So on that deepest level, then, attachment from that perspective is manifesting as simply as a facet, a display of sosotopeyeshe, the primordial consciousness, primordial consciousness of discernment, a facet of Buddha mind. Anger is arising as melodabuyeshe, as primordial, mirror-like primordial consciousness. And then the Delusion is, from this perspective, not seen as delusion at all, it's seen as a dis- pure display of the primordial consciousness of the absolute space of phenomena. That's where we're going. Now this is, this, but this moving into the attending, that is, observing whatever rises the mind from the stillness, observing even these subjective surges, these upheavals of anything, but most importantly, these three mental afflictions, being able to view them from this point of stillness, utterly crucial. You get the taste of it. You get the taste of it. And that which we immediately intellectually understand starts to really get in. We start to experience it. And that is what we all understand perfectly well, is when that, that the person is not the same as the mental affliction. I mean, yeah, we got that. So Roberta, if Roberta ever experiences delusion, craving hostility, she is not delusion. She's not, she's not that. She is a sentient being. She has a Buddha nature, and that comes and it goes, but she is not. She is not an angry person, as if now that's fusion. That's who you are. You're an angry person. That's not true, right? Now we all understand that, though. And we understand the analogy, too, that if in a, you know, in a, mental, a mental institute, a mental hospital, that the physician comes through, and here's a person with paranoid, you know, par- paranoia. I mean, really psychotic case of paranoia. Here's a person with bipolar. Here's a person with manic depression. Here's a person. Here's a person. 
of course. I mean, they're so easy to understand intellectually. Of course, the, the compassionate, wise physician doesn't like this type of psychotic person better than that one, because it's more pleasant. But simply sees, hey, these are mental afflictions, feeling only compassion for each patient, regardless of whether they're suffering from mild neurosis to a completely debilitating psychosis. That's all clear, right? But not so easy to do. That is not so easy to actually view that, to actually see others in that way. The cognitive fusion is so intense and it's so immediate, right? So immediate. Well, we need a base. Just like for loving kindness, we have to love have, have loving kindness here, and then we extend it there. If there's none here, it's going to be hard to extend that which you don't have inwardly. So likewise, if you have seen, not just intellectually figured out, which you can do in a, you know, in a jiffy, so fast, but if you've seen, as you're resting in stillness and these surges of mental afflictions come up, kind of like a, a bout of malaria, and then they, dis, they disappear, and a bout of this and that disappears, a bout of this disappears, and you're remaining in stillness, and you're not afflicted by them, then you know, I am not my mental afflictions. They come and go, and the stream of consciousness continues, and at, at ground it is pristine awareness. If you realize that, then you're in really great shape. But when you know that, then number one, you can start to really more and more realistically see even the mental afflictions as displays at the very least, a bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality as you approach Rikpa, seeing them as displays of primordial consciousness, Buddha mind. But now let's take that step further. We go back to the uncommon preliminaries, and specifically that one of Dharma siblings, the Vajrayana siblings, right? This is really, this is like handling a knife. It can be very useful. Knives are a very, very useful tool and you can really cut yourself on them, if especially they're very sharp. This is a knife. Because how many religious organizations, sects, schools, churches, monasteries, have had the view, our side's really pure, but your side sucks. In fact, we should have to convert you. In fact, I think we'll have to kill you if you don't convert. We'll have to suppress you at least. Probably just better to murder you at best and burn all your books. Because after all, you're not on the inside. How many times has that happened? And it's so easy to beat up on religion, but now let's just let's be fair. Politics, how often does that side? All of the people on our side, oh, we're, we're fine. It's your side sucks. Everything, our, well, you know, some, some of our side, we, we do, you know, little naughty things and we go to jail, you know, we're corrupt. But, you know, people will be people, but your side totally sucks, you all sucks, you also totally suck, you're evil. You know, it happens all the time. In America right now, it's just disgusting. It actually is worse than it was 50 years ago. It's disgusting. They can't see anything good on the other side at all. That's a breakdown of democracy, frankly. Okay, end of political commentary. It happens in politics. It happens in philosophy. It happens in materialism. It happens, it's a human predicament. It happens in families. It happens in ethnic groups. In other words, it's not just a religious problem. As if you've solved the problem, you've stopped being religious. We went through that one before. So the last thing we need in Buddha Dharma, the last, the last thing we need in Vajrayana, is do the same, do the word goddamned thing. Because it really is, if, it, if God ever damned anything, this would be the first on the list. The, the same goddamn thing, but now it's the, you know, our group with our guru and our empowerment and our special group, we're pure. I'm just surrounded by viras and dakinis, but those people out there, they just suck. You know, the ocean samsara, the pathetic slobs, you know, 
mental afflictions all over the place. We're, we're cool. We're cool. Oh, that's just the same old, you know. So there are really stupid ways of doing that. So mature sanghas recognize within their ranks that sometimes, sometimes it happens with the guru. The guru screws up. We know that, tragically, too many times. And the Dalai Lama just commented on that, just recently. And he said, I can quote him almost verbatim, not quite, but very close, he said, oh, I'm critical of this big emphasis on ritual and ritual in Tibetan Buddhism. We really need to be focusing on purifying our destructive and afflictive emotions. And when the teacher screws up, then you should talk about it. <laughs> that sounds kind of sane to me. As opposed to, oh no, oh no, 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 crazy wisdom. Crazy wisdom. <laughs> the other gurus say suck, you know, but my guru, crazy, crazy wisdom. Whatever he does, it's fine, it's perfect, it's perfect, because that's what it said in the text. See, all the things your guru does, it's perfect. Yeah, I will. Uh huh. And I am a five year demented idiot. Uh huh. This is where I'm going to be enlightened by being a total five year old idiot. Lots of luck with that. That's happened. Anything the guru does, excuse. Excuse? Oh, no. There has to be something mysterious there. Uh, yeah. That's what he said. So we can do that with the guru, we can do that with the sangha. So the mature ones recognize that the guru screws up. Bring it to attention, try to clear it out, get clear. If the guru is being dishonest, covering up, refuses to admit mistakes, release him. Release her, whoever it is. Move on. Don't get snagged. Don't get snagged there. That's what His Holiness has said. Don't need to get caught, get caught up in abuse and contempt and slander because that's just more non-virtuous speech. But just release and move on. But now for the Sangha, within the Sangha itself. Can it happen within a Vajrayana Sangha? People receive empowerment. The chosen ones. Can it happen that people within the Sangha, who generally have good motivations and they're doing a practice, can Sangha members really screw up, sometimes engage in really unwholesome behavior? Of course, if we didn't, we wouldn't need to have a Sangha at all. We'd all be enlightened. Then you don't need a Vajrayana Sangha. Right? If everybody enlightened, what do you need to have a Sangha for? Just go out in the world and manifest all over the place. You know? So we're in training, those of us in a Vajrayana Sangha who are following a guru, or more, more than one guru. We're in training, which means we're in training, which means we still have mental afflictions, which means they're bound to get, get the better of us at times, and we're bound to screw up at times. So what do spiritual friends do? Well, what they don't do is fuse the, the, the wrong behavior or the mental affliction with the person, because then you've blown it. Then you're not doing one of the core uncommon preliminaries of viewing your Dharma siblings, your Vajrayana siblings, with pure vision, viras and dakinis. How do we do this? How do we not slip over into my side's good and your side is totally screwed up? How do we avoid what religions and political factions and ethnic groups and so forth have been doing for all of recorded history? My side's good, your side sucks. My family's really good. Everything my children do is just great, but your, your, your children have a real problem. You know, I mean, it's just everywhere. To somehow highlight religion here is just pathological. Of course religious people do it. That's because they're people. But to think that atheists and materialists are any better is just idiotic. That's the word I most like for materialism. Mostly it's just idiotic. You know? And so how do we do it? Where's the scalpel? Well, you know, do this practice and the scalpel is already in your hand. And that is recognize unwholesome behavior as unwholesome behavior. 
And as a spiritual friend, if you feel you can do something to help that person get back on track, you do that. Or if you feel it would be best for the guru to do that, well, bring it to the attention so you have a healthy, balanced, wholesome, virtuous, ethical sangha. And this is a self-correcting unit, somewhat analogous to the scientific community. They don't do that much for ethics, but when they make a mistake, you know, sometimes it could be fudging data, sometimes, it, it does happen sometimes, sometimes they just make a mistake, then the scientific community comes in and they, they do really have a self-regulating process, peer review, checking other people's results, and so forth and so on, and a lot of mistakes are corrected. They tend to be more, you know, research-style style mistakes. But that's good. It's really one of the great boons of science at its best, right? Well, that should be also for the Sangha. That when a teacher errs, when students err, benevolently, with a pure motivation of bodhicitta, we do our very best to get the error to cease, to be released, recognized, remorse if, if appropriate, and move on. So the simple point there is to, as we are here seeking, in this simple practice of settling the mind in its natural state, with the blessing of Guru Yoga, we're seeking to identify ourselves, at the very least with the substrate consciousness, which is beneath the storm of the mental afflictions, if at best, of course, to cut through that right down to Rikpa. And we're doing that hour after hour after hour of each day. And then when we turn our attention out, say, ha, huh, but there's Claudia. But Claudia's been doing the same practice all day. She's been seeking that, so I'm going to go with her on this one. If I see Claudia engaged in some misbehavior, I'm not going to fuse that misbehavior with her or anybody else. I'm just choosing the randomly. I'm not going to do that because I'm not doing that to myself. So if it's not realistic, not helpful to fuse my own identity with my own mental afflictions, my own misconduct, then, but, but then it wouldn't be just or right or useful or in any way beneficial to do that to anybody else either. So therefore, if we see misconduct in somebody else's part, we do what we're doing towards ourselves. I will attend to you as you are seeking to attend to yourself, at least the substrate consciousness, which is sometimes obscured and sometimes not by mental afflictions. But insofar as I can, I'm going to see right through that and see you as the Dakini, the Vira, the Dakini, the Vira, and so on, for which the obscurations come and go. So then we find that very knife-edge balance that we are maintaining the integrity, the ethics, proper conduct of the Sangha, and of ourselves, and of the teacher, at the same time maintaining pure view of the teacher, of ourselves, and the Sangha. So the knife edge is there, yeah? It's so important not to err. We are on one side, we've just stopped practicing Vajrayana. And maybe we've stopped practicing Dharma altogether, because we're just fusing people with their crud, with their junk. Oh, that's not even dharma, that's just ordinary. And the other side, then we're falling into this great big abyss that people have been falling into forever. My side is good, your side sucks. I'm good, it's you, you have the problem. The stakes here are extremely high. But there is a way right through it. Right down that middle way of not falling to this side, and not falling to that side, and what is left in the middle is good. It's really smart, and it's really good. So let's practice.
Namo Laman Deshe Dupe Ko Kunjo Sumye Ranjin La Datan Roto Semjen Nam Janju Badu Kapsu Chi In the Lama, who is the embodiment of the Sugatas, of the nature of the Three Jewels, I, together with the beings of the six realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Semgendo kundendo lama sangye dupne ni Kangla kangdu tinle For the sake of all beings, I generate the spirit of awakening and cultivate the realization of the Lama as Buddha. By means of enlightened activity, I shall train each being according to their needs, and I vow to liberate the world. ゲイユケンノクチャンサンベマゲサドンボラヤムセンチョキンウドニェペマジュネシスタンコドカンドマンブコケキジェスダトゥキジンゲラプチェシェクスソゴルペマシディウォン In the northwest frontier of Odiyama, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the wondrous supreme city and is surrounded by a host of many dakinis. Following in your footsteps, I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Bhama City Hum. Guru Pema City Take the four empowerments and the merging of body, speech, and mind with that of the Guru.
If you'd like to switch positions, please do so now. At the very beginning of the session, imbue your practice with the taking of refuge, the bodhicitta, the pure view, of viewing all appearances as the body of the Buddha, all sounds as the speech, and all mental events viewing them from the perspective of pristine awareness, your best approximation. Viewing the space of the mind as Dhammadhatu and all the events arising within it as creative displays of pristine awareness. Imagine what reality will look like once you've become enlightened. then simplify and rest in stillness, in non-conceptual stillness, but clearly cognizant stillness. In your own awareness holding its own ground, illuminating the space of the mind and whatever arises within it, This time making a special point of being aware not only of the objective appearances that arise in the space of the mind that present themselves to you, like thoughts and images, but also coming from this place of deep ease, of looseness, of release, of grasping, and from this stillness that is unveiled through the absence of grasping. Observe the subjective impulses, the desires, the emotions, and the mental afflictions. Now is the time to distinguish the stillness from the motions of the mind. 
Again and again, out of sheer habit, you are bound to be abducted, not only by thoughts and images, as your mind goes off to the referent of these mental events, but all the easier is it to be abducted or caught in the grip of these subjective impulses, including the mental afflictions. As soon as you see that you've been caught, relax, release and return. When the flow of cognizance dims, becomes vague, and you simply become spaced out, and maybe blank-minded, restore your interest, refresh your interest in the awareness of awareness. Get back on your throne. Refresh the interest in the practice. Restore the cognizance of awareness resting in its own place. And then retain that flow of awareness as you attend to the space of the mind and whatever arises within it. Now and again, introspectively checking upon the body for the posture and the respiration to see that as focused as you may become in the practice. You do not allow the effort and the focus you are applying to interfere with the effortless natural flow of the respiration. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Voilà ça. So, very briefly, uh, I've used just kind of playfully this symbol of the right index finger being held upright as the symbol of the stillness of awareness, stillness of awareness that we can experience immediately at a deeper level, that's substrate consciousness. But then we'll find something more familiar, and that is as in Padmasambhava right here, and it's in many, many of the, uh, these archetypal manifestations of the enlightenment, holding a vajra right there. Holding, instead of the finger, holding a vajra, right? Upright vajra. That's, that's a glorified finger. <laughs> it's a vajra finger. And it symbolizes, of course, pristine awareness. Ultimate, bod- u- ultimate bodhicitta. Dharmakaya. Right? Then in the left hand, as in the case of vajrasattva, with the vajra, but in the left hand of the bell, the bell symbolizes emptiness, dharmadhatu. But this is kind of a little bit wrathful. Chungzetor. Padmasambhava is often depicted a little bit wrathful, a little bit ferocious. And so he's holding, instead of a bell, he's holding a skull cup. Again, symbolizing emptiness. But not just emptiness, but that skull cup is filled with ambrosia, the ambrosia of great bliss. The indivisibility of immutable bliss and emptiness. That's pretty much it. That's the whole path. That's it right there. So the Vajra, that is a symbol of Samanta Bhadra, right here. This is really a lovely altar. Whoever put it together, probably Rhonda had something to do with it. Who? Jamie. Aha, beautifully done. I mean, just the selection. There are so many beings we could have here, you know, but the table's only so big. And so the ones that were selected, so Samanta Bhadra, there's the, the deepest archetypal embodiment of pristine awareness in single form, just Samatabhadra, but then often depicted in union with Samatabhadri. And Samatabhadra symbolizes, personifies, pristine awareness. Samatabhadri, the female, symbolizes Dhammadhatu. And they're in primordial union. So, very good. So this is something to practice all day then, yeah? All day. Just rest in that as much as you can all day. We have nothing else to do here. So let's just practice Dharma all day. Good. <laughs>